a minute ago where you wanted to kind of we were talking about Deadpool and is Deadpool Deadpool if, if Liefeld takes him to image which would and I would argue too is like in New Mutants number 98 you have three characters introduced you've got Deadpool Gideon and Domino and Domino to some degree goes with uh, Liefeld uh, as Vogue Vogue looks fairly similar to Domino functions in a somewhat similar capacity but Domino never really caught fire in general uh, Domino still to some degree hasn't happened even though she's kind of a cool looking character but she never really blew up and I actually really liked Gideon I thought Gideon was a neat character idea as well a, a cool villain uh, they, they set up a lot of stuff in New Mutants to, to kind of sell Gideon and ultimately oh, Gideon never went anywhere because I don't think they ever fully played out the repercussions of turning spun, Sunspot to the dark side and, and having this corporate mogul who's also a mutant you know manipulating the, the riches the fortunes of Robert DeCosta's family and you know being involved with all this other stuff they instead they went off that stupid extremist tangent with the immortal Highlander versions of the mutants and shit and so Gideon never happens and Liefeld never takes Gideon back either and does something similar with him over at Image the way that to a large degree Shaft was Shattershot uh, part two to some degree uh, so Gideon never ends up happening anywhere you know so it, it kind of depends on who invests in him and whether or not something ends up working but like Deadpool if you may, you may remember Ed McGinnis and Joe Kelly did the Deadpool series right and so Liefeld ultimately gets Ed McGinnis to go do a bunch of work for him over at Awesome on stuff like Fighting American uh, or originally Agent America uh, yeah and they did like that smash comic where there's their riff on the Hulk and stuff and McGinnis doesn't go full McGinnis until he's over at Awesome he did nice work on Deadpool but he didn't fully embrace that cartoonish style of his until he's at Awesome and then he comes back to the mainstream at DC with Superman and I still feel that Ed McGinnis may perhaps be the greatest Superman artist of all time I love Ed McGinnis as Superman. Superman he did Batman Superman with Jeff Lowe but I actually really liked his run on I think it was Action Comics or one of the other Superman titles where he was just doing Superman. Is he still drawn today? Yeah, but he does a lot of covers and stuff. He doesn't do a ton of interiors anymore, which is unfortunate because I think he's an incredible artist. I think he's one of the greatest artists of uh, uh, to come up in like the late 90s, early 2000s. These guys that came up after Image. The, the, one of the last of like the real superstar artists. McGinnis is just fantastic. I love his work. But when he was at Marvel, he was not Ed McGinnis yet. It was after he went to Awesome. That's when he started, he figured out the style that he has today. That's where it developed was that awesome and then when he comes on to Superman it's just like the perfect marriage of character and and imagery and of course he was a, an incredible incro Hulk artist as well and I don't mean he's an incredible Hulk artist I mean on the Hulk he was an incredible artist he's I think he does one of the greatest Hulks that was ever done either but Superman especially I think he's just phenomenal and Liefeld peels off Ed McGinnis to go do fucking Agent America Fighting American all that kind of stuff and that doesn't ever go anywhere you know Ed McGinnis doesn't become Ed McGinnis till he goes back to the mainstream 
extreme. What if he'd peeled off Jeff, I mean, uh, Joe Kelly instead? Because as much as I liked Ed McGinnis's art on Deadpool, he, he wasn't there yet. It was Joe Kelly and how he wrote Deadpool that really created the Deadpool that we know today, that made him the fan favorite character. And again, it's very similar to what happened. Even the Merc with the mouth. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not even sure if he was referred to as the Merc with the mouth yet before the Joe Kelly series. Deadpool as a series was sort of a chance that Marvel was taking. This was at when Mar- Deadpool was, I mean, uh, Marvel was in their bankruptcy period and they were kind of just testing the waters with shit. You know, Deadpool had had some heat on him in the past, but that had really cooled by the time they got to the ongoing series. And the, the series that Joe Kelly wrote was a cult favorite. It's just like with Christopher Priest. Christopher Priest Black Panther barely survived month from month. Nobody, the book was not selling well at all. And one of the reasons why the book was as weird as it was was because he was constantly trying to reconfigure the book to make it something that would sell. Marvel needed hits in the post-bankruptcy years, so they were constantly trying to figure out a way to make Black Panther at least pay for itself instead of being this book that just barely scraped by month after month. Now, Christopher Priest's stuff is revered, and people are buying it in, like, omnibus format sort of stuff, and then, obviously, a lot of the material that was mined for the Black Panther movie came from Christopher Priest, but the book didn't sell for shit. And Priest will be the first to tell you that the Reginald Hudlin series, which I didn't think was all that good, sold magnitudes better than the Priest stuff ever did, even though it's not that well-regarded anymore, it seems like, and not very much of the material from the Hudlin run made it into the movie. Most of the movie is the Don McGregor material and the, the Christopher Priest material. So it was never a financial success, but it was a cult hit and it was hugely influential. And the same thing happened with Joe Kelly on Deadpool. It, the book didn't sell that great when Joe Kelly was doing it. And Christopher Priest it was the one who succeeded Joe Kelly on that. And both of their runs are well re- remembered. Both those runs paved the way for Deadpool becoming the cult phenomenon that he became and then ultimately becoming a major culture phenomenon where he actually became a huge comic book character with a huge fan base that has crossed over into the mainstream and you buy Deadpool shirts in Target and came Kroger's even I mean uh, Kroger's and Walmart even before the movie you know he was still already a thing that people were aware of from video games from cartoons from everything else and it all goes back really to Joe Kelly's work uh, but for some reason Liefeld doesn't go and give Joe Kelly some coin and have him come over and write some stuff over at Awesome he was content to let jo- Jeff Loeb write everything over at Awesome and he would just pull off all these hot artists like Ian Churchill and, and, and McGinnis Scott Platt Stephen Platt right and then with the exception of getting Alan Moore in the mix as well uh, but he would have like a couple of writers and then everything else was about getting the hot arts and paying them a ton of money and it's like well maybe what you really need is a guy like a Joe Kelly to help build up your brand there's a, a Young Blood series I've never completed you have a Mark Millar series I was never like you have these hot art writers and they, their series are yeah. And that never happens. Well, and that was a, at a point though where the money wasn't there. There was there were some payment issues at that point. So that's part of why that didn't happen. But you know, you'd have to write a much smaller check to Joe Kelly. Maybe you should have realized that what was making Deadpool pop wasn't the art; it was the writing, or at least the marriage of both. And maybe take that creative team and do something with them. And they didn't do that. And I think that's one of the, the a bad decision that ended up hurting them. That's one of the reasons why you never got another Deadpool, even though they tried to turn Bloodstrike into Deadpool. Well, maybe you needed to get Joe Kelly to make that happen. Maybe you needed the writer, not so much the artist. Wow, okay, so that's the first part of our what if. Here's the second part of your what if. What if the founding fathers of Image are leading? But it's not the seven you think. Let's see, let's throw in a, We'll throw Jim Lee in there just because the art. Well, Joe, just, I want Jim starting because he's such a strong person. After we met him, 
That would have been an amazing fight between. Well, it, it's it's somewhat bizarre that Starlin, and I, I that was one of the many many. Well, okay, well, but just as a, before you even get started on that, though, one of the things that I really wanted to talk to Starlin about, but a when I met him, I I lost the list of questions I'd managed to cobble together, and I just because of various time pressures, I could not put together the list of questions I really wanted, the kind of deep dive stuff I wanted to do. But one of the things I wanted to talk to him about, and I didn't because I'm rattling stuff off the top of my head with a clock ticking. But one of the things I wanted to ask him is why wasn't he at Image? And I know one of the answers for that because Jim Starlin had been at first for years, and he'd also dabbled with creator own work over at DC, and it wasn't lighting up the way that you know one would have hoped. Well, he kind of had to rebuild his brand because he had started to rebuild his brand after uh, the 80s had kind of seen him uh, not sell to the same degree because he was off the independence. He was just doing much. He was making more. He was the Prince model where he's off at a, at a non-major label, but because he owns more of the rights, he's making more money. So he's still doing fine, but he's not as visible anymore. He's not keeping his, his, his yeah, he's not keeping himself out there the way he used to. So the late 80s, Stalin started to rebuild his, his brand with stuff like the, his Batman run where he killed off Robin, which was a pretty big deal. And he did the cult with Bernie Wrights and that was a pretty big deal. But then after that, he'd had some stuff that wasn't that well received. Gilgamesh to the weird. I kind of fell off the Stalin trail a bit after, no, I don't think Gilgamesh, but uh, uh, not Greed, um, Greed. Okay. I really liked Breed. One, two, and three. I thought they were like- And Breed was set up over at Bravura, which was uh, Malibu's second image, basically. They launched Image, and then they took that money and they put it into the Ultraverse, which is their shared universe of, of properties. And they hired a bunch of Bronze Age writers and mid-range artists to kind of put together this universe that was owned by the company in which the creators had a share of the property, but they didn't own any of those properties. They just had a stake in them. They had, like, participation, but they don't own any of those characters. Um so they also decided to try to pull some bigger name talent with the Bravura line, which was basically the same deal that, as they had with Image, where the, it was 100% creator-owned, but they they weren't able to get like the hottest artists in comics that time. But they got a lot of guys that were solid, they were well-known, uh, including Howard Chaikin, who was a pioneer at First Comics and at Pacific. So he was one of the first guys that got away from the mainstream and was doing independent books, creator-owned books. Uh, so they got him for Bravura, they got Jim Starlin, uh, Jostalan also pulled in Peter David, who had been writing Red Star previously, and already collected. Because then you would have Peter David walking in the offices of Image, where Eric Larson is walking around. Well, you wouldn't. That's just it. That was that was one of the issues was that there were these animosities that were formed around the creation of Image that continue to this day where there are certain people that should have been at Image that weren't. Like John Byrne had a, a great animosity toward the Image creators, even though they were all his children. And so he never has done anything with Image Comics. He wants nothing to do with Image Comics. And he, in fact, created a rival group over at Dark Horse, the Dark Horse Mavericks, I think they were called, where it was him and Mike Mignola and Art Adams and a few other guys. And they were basically in direct competition with Image Comics as this imprint over at Dark Horse, while Jim Starlin, Howard Chaikin, Gil Kane, Stephen Grant, Dan Jurgens at one point in time, although I don't think it ever came about. There were a number of people who were somewhat uh, similar mindset. They set up over at Image, I mean, at Bravura. And I'm sure one of the reasons why they set up at Bravura was because Image had brought in a lot of those early independent creators like Mike Grell, Keith Giffen, and then they cut their, their throats and, and left them for dead uh, because uh, they weren't putting
putting out books in the time frame that they wanted them to. They weren't putting out the cutting edge type of material they wanted. So they just cut their asses loose pretty, pretty brutally. Um, and so after that happened, I'm sure the guys like Jim Starlin didn't feel welcome over at Image. But at the time period when Image was coming about, he was rebuilding his brand because he had done some stuff over at, at DC. He'd killed Robin, but then he'd been fired from the Batman titles when the backlash came over killing Robin. All of his work right up at DC. So he was trying to rebuild yet again over at Marvel with Silver Surfer. He took over Silver Surfer from, I believe, Steve Englehart and was just starting to begin a new cycle of Thanos stories. Then the image exodus happens and he goes from a guy in like a mid-range Marvel book with a little bit of heat on it because of Ron Lim to being one of the books that's really to the fore of Marvel. Because really, once the image creators left, what they had were the X titles and things like Silver Surfer that had some heat. So once Infinity Gauntlet got started and that was a huge success, basically Jim Starlin had a whole industry around himself at Marvel making tons of money, making tons of royalties and rebuilding his brand. So because he was still rebuilding where the image guys had were at the peak already when they left to do image, he had to kind of make his name all over again in the 1990s. And so by the time he had done that through the Infinity books, image didn't seem to be a welcome place for him. So he ends up over at Bravura instead. So even though even though I wanted to ask him that and find out what his opinions were, realistically, it's easy to kind of just do the math, figure out, yeah, that he, he wasn't hot anymore. He needed to get heat again. He had a solid gig over at Marvel. In fact, he was reaping the benefits of the image guys leaving. He was one of the guys who got a bigger profile because Image wasn't around to suck all the oxygen out of the room anymore. So yeah, it makes total sense why he wouldn't be at Image. But again, the what if concept, with him sitting at that table with them, what kind of influence do you see the, the Image books would have taken? Because he's very—he's a writer and an artist. Yeah, well, not just that. He's also a businessman. He's a guy who crunches the numbers. He left Marvel not because of any kind of creative differences, but because Marvel stopped cutting him the checks. And he's like, okay, well, I see what you're doing here. I'm going to sue you and get my money. And I'm also taking my property to another publisher. And then once he went to that other publisher, he had a title that was sustained for a number of years with other talent. He only drew the book for a, uh, and wrote and drew the book for a few months. Then he just only wrote the book. And then finally, he was having nothing to do with the book whatsoever and was able to farm out talent to keep that book going and be able to profit off of that book while it was continuing to publish under other hands. So that's basically the image model. You know, he's sort of like laid the groundwork for that because there were a lot of books. Howard Chaykin also, he started American Flag. He did it for a number of years, but ultimately he farmed that stuff out to other talent who were drawing it uh, and writing it and everything else. And he was still profiting off of it. First Comics was still uh, keeping it running and they were profiting off of it. So you have to be a businessman and make that work. Otherwise it all falls apart on you. But yeah, it would have made a lot of sense for uh, particularly at First Comics because these were guys who'd been able to sustain throughout the 1980s and some of these guys still had a fair amount of heat on them like Mike Barron had been doing the Punisher book for a number of years working with some of the image guys like Will Sportacio in, in crafting this stuff um, he ended up going back to Dark Horse and doing Nexus because Dark Horse managed to untangle the rights to that property after First had gone under and, and a lot of the rights were compromised by the bankruptcy of First Comics so he kind of got sucked into the Dark Horse because of that but somebody like a Mike Barron would have been smart to have over at Image Comics if Mike Barron had been writing some of those books, they probably would have done better in the long run because they'd have had more solid plotting, more solid storytelling. They, you wouldn't be making fun of Image Comics 30 years later over their, their writing choices from the, of the books over the first couple of years. So in other words, you would see from what, what we were playing around with here, I'm gathering that the Image books would have seen, like we would see collections of these books because I don't see traits for these books. For the most part, yeah. Well, in part because they were just so heavily overproduced, but also there's a real lack of demand because they're not great reads for the most part. Look at the ones that 
that get collected. Spawn has been in print for ages because it's one of the better books. Savage Dragon, the same way. There's a demand for those books. That's why they're in print. They're not going to print them just out of vanity because it costs too much money to keep things in print these days. They could just leave them as digital copies. For instance, Liefeld's catalog is not really in print. Aside from them taking the revised version of Youngblood and breaking it up into four chapters for sale on Comixology, that's it for Youngblood until you get to the newer versions in the 2000s. You just can't get those Youngblood books in digital copies. They don't exist because there's in part because there's not, not there's not a market for it because they're infamous. They're not well regarded. People don't want to buy those books. But generally speaking, it's not seen as financially feasible to do that. So yeah, if the books had been had stronger writing, if they'd been able to build a more faithful following for reasons beyond the aesthetic qualities, the, the visuals, yeah, it would have helped them in the long run. And they, they if they'd had a few guys that were writer artists too, like they may not listen to Mike Barron or they might not listen to Fabian Isieza, you know, the kind of guys that they would be working with. But if Howard Chaikin, a writer artist who'd been in the trenches for years, had been talking to them and writing some of their stuff, that might have helped them out in the business end and in the, the writing end. Uh, and certainly Jim Starlin would have been the same way. But I picture a spawn drawn by McFarlane and written by Jim Starlin. That would be great, yeah. Amazing. Especially because Breed covered not the same territory, but not entirely dissimilar territory. You know, it was a lot of heaven and hell and being caught in the middle of these cosmic forces, very violent, lots of demonic entities and brutal combat and stuff. They're not really that dissimilar. So yeah, it would have been, I I would have bred the shit out of Spawn if Jim Starlin had been writing it. Are you kidding me? I just think that... Because I'm thinking the, the whole point of this what if was to throw these weird concepts out because you're so versed with the writers and stuff to see like what I'm, I mean we can't predict what would happen all components but how much difference would it be from there to today if these writers like you said like you know if if Deadpool if Kelly Marlin did go to Image Comics Deadpool would have probably thrived with it and Image Comics right now we'd have we'd have seen a movie Deadpool from Fox an Image property you know and it made all this money with uh, with you know. Uh, Ryan Reynolds. Well, and, and if that had happened too, think about that. Uh, Deadpool, unlike a lot of those other properties, Deadpool doesn't need the X-Men. You know, it, it really does stand on its own. It's kind of its own thing. So imagine if the creator had a 100% stake in that. Dude, he could have gone and knocked on the door of Cyberforce. I mean, that Colossus, you have impact. You got the characters you need. I mean, you could create characters on the fly. And you're right. I mean, those characters were known X Men, except for Colossus. But Colossus. Well, I'm not, I'm, not just, I'm not just talking about the movie, though. I'm talking about even in the comics. If you look at all the solo Deadpool material, it's almost all stuff that's within his own little universe. It's Trinity and Slayback and T Ray, you know, Vanessa, Copycat, Domino. It's all stuff that was really in, if not in Liefeld's area, the people who worked with Liefeld. It really is isolated from the rest of the X books to a large degree. Yes, it launched an X Force. Yes, it helped that he was basically the death stroke of the new mutants showing up and kicking the entire team's ass in one issue. I'm sure that helped to launch him. But after that, and especially the things that made him the cult phenomenon that he became, you don't need the X-Men for that. It's it's kind of its own thing. Deadpool is off in his own space. So you could absolutely have made that work as an image property and, and rather than having ever been at Marvel. That's a good point. See, because I, like I, I just wanted to play this little game just to see where we could take it. So that was our version of what if well, did you have anybody else besides Jim Starlin you would want in the... the well, no, it's just... It's, it's a... It's, it's a it, <laughs> that's right. Well, it's just like... you. Well, it's just... You, you just can't... Yeah. John Byrne's not going. We've already discussed that. Jim Starlin, I say, in my opinion, would have remolded 
Image. Image would have been. I think they'd have had their shit together a lot more with Jim Starlin around. I think they would have respected him. I think they would have listened to him. I think he could have written several of their titles as well as, as doing his own stuff. I think the breed would have been a re- a good fit for them. Um, I think I think aesthetically, this whole goofy dialogue, he would have been like, no, you need to put more. Like when he talked to us, you know, more in it, your heart and soul into it. Al Simmons discovers that he's not exactly who he thinks he is. He's half human and half demon, and in trouble with just about everyone. In Todd McFarlane and Jim Starlin's groundbreaking series, Stan, Al Simmons continues his journey of discovery, learning more about his demonic heritage and level just art designs for Earth. This section of the Spawn saga starts off in a Shaolin temple in Tibet in the mid-70s, continues through the 80s with Al fighting alongside Central American rebels, and ends with his costly confrontation with Violator and his brothers. Also, readers will finally learn who the mysterious woman is that has been stalking Stan across heaven and hell, Angela, the deadly agent of the pan-dimensional papal inquisition. I think, number one, Jim Starlin writing Spawn, God, if the gods are up there, will make that happen, even in three parts. That would be amazing. If, if he's not there, the Infinity Gauntlet is taken to... Well, Infinity Gauntlet doesn't work in Image Comics, though. Image Comics doesn't do cosmic. Well, you need a... But remember, he created their cosmic universe. He said, people asked him, come up with this, he's like... I looked at pretty books and saw cool people. But the, the materials were there, but also you've got to understand that image, but it, it, it works. It make it, Infinity Gauntlet works because it's the Marvel universe that he's playing with. You know, if, if you, t- if you go and you have, you know, Master Chaos and Lord Order and, and, and Eternity and all that shit, if you just port that to image, they don't work. They only work because it's part of the Marvel universe. What do, what do, what does Marvel and DC have that image doesn't have? You're right. They, they have those galactic characters. Those characters that are moving outside the scope of the characters on the planet. Image doesn't have that. Everything is images in there. Now, they, some of the newest stuff like Glory and the new Prophet stuff went outside and they played with that concept. But they don't have that, that giant world building. Mean, because now Image is almost... I don't feel like it's... Mm-hmm. They're not connected anymore. I th- and I think that that's, that's both an asset and a great detriment. Because you don't have an image universe that you're selling anymore. None of the individual titles support one another. They're all islands. And some of those islands are more populated than others. Some of those islands are more profitable than others. But there's nobody to lift you up if you're if you're failing. You know, you, you, you basically stand and fall on your own devices for each individual title. I think Stalin would walk in there and maybe throw that console. You don't have anything bigger than Spawn's hell. Like, you know, you need something so that your characters can grow and do something else. Because, I mean, even, even Wildcats, they come from another planet over here, and that's it. Like, there's nothing... Yeah, but the thing is, the problem with the Cosmic and making Cosmic work, because there were other companies that did try to do Cosmic. Dark Horse uh, Comics Greatest World, for instance, tried to get Cosmic early on. You have to build the Cosmic. You can't start with Cosmic, because it's too... Cosmic, honestly, that was such an amazing... But again, he's building off of pre-existing concepts. You've introduced those concepts. I'm not saying space. I'm not saying aliens. Uh, I'm saying the kind of cosmic stuff that Stalin traffics in, you've got to build to that in the, in, within the universe. Like you could go off and do Warlock on its own without it being part of the Marvel universe at all, right? And it's still a good story, but it means a lot more when you can, when the, it starts off as a small tale between, you know, uh, Warlock and an evil future version of himself and then Thanos gets involved and then the Avengers and 
and Spider-Man and things starts to get involved. Yeah, you bringing these earthly characters that are familiar, that are that familiar, that are that you're beloved, that you, that you and you're taking them into this cosmic space. So you have an automatic scale. You know where the Marvel heroes are. So when you take them out of their element and you put them into these fantastic circumstances, you feel it even more because you, you've got something you can relate it to. Whereas when you go straight to cosmic without having developed that properly, it's just too esoteric. It's not you, you don't have anything to ground you. You don't understand what it all means to, to you as an individual, to the individuals involved. And all of the image had a problem where they were trying to act like they'd done the, the hard work that they hadn't done yet. They all The entire universe starts as in scene. It's, it's all already like we're, we're, they've got all these teams and all these concepts, all these properties. Yeah, we just kind of step into it. And you're not invested in those characters yet. You're not invested in that universe yet. You don't know how all the pieces fit. That doesn't mean anything to you. Um, and so when you do cosmic where you don't even have the grounding of an earthly environment and, and earthly physics and everything else, then it's just that much more alienating. It's that much more distancing because it just doesn't mean anything to you. Uh, there were cosmic image books and there were space frame image books, but DC Comics took decades to build up their universe in order for a cosmic odyssey to happen. Same goes for Marvel. Now, if you had a property like Fantastic Forward Image, which someone like Liefeld, I mean, like somebody like Starling could have set up, where you take these characters that are familiar, that are relatable, that, that you, you, they, you, they have personality and they, uh, uh, or something that you can, you, that are from our world, but then they're taken to this next level where they're a little bit more fantastic and a little bit more crazy. And then you take these guys that you understand and you, you know where they're coming from and then you put them in cosmic circumstances. That's what Fantastic Four was. Is there a team of adventurers similar to a bunch of other properties like Challenges of the Unknown or in television things like, you know, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, these teams of people, Sequest, whatever, these explorers that are basically human, although in the case of Fantastic Four, they're enhanced, but then you have them explore all these bizarre realms and that's where the Marvel Universe gets built. That's why Cosmic works the Marvel Universe better than it does at DC because you've got the negative zone and you've got this Kree and you scroll and you've got all this stuff all set up and so when you, you come across that stuff, it matters matters to you it means something um there are, there's kree guys running around in warlock you tend to forget that but they're there and it gives you a sense of where warlock is within this cosmos with cosmic odyssey dc had all these fun sci-fi concepts from the 50s and 60s that weren't really working anymore and so saw and put them all together and tied them into the new gods and made them all kind of relate to one another so that they, they kind of lifted all of them up the thanagarians weren't that interesting the ranians weren't that interesting the tamaranians weren't all that interesting new gods themselves were just sort of kind of come back after years of, of disuse uh, they'd been built up by superpowers their, their connection to the toy line but the superpower stories were pretty terrible so you needed an actual story within the DC continuity that fans could get behind not just toy manufacturers and so by putting them all together it made it revitalized them all because you got to see how they interact with one another uh, but you have to build it you, you can't just that just doesn't just happen so unless you're going to have a Fantastic Four to create a, a, a universe for Image everything's earthbound and Image does have a its own universe it is interconnected but it's interconnected through government agencies and black ops and clandestine operations and international uh, uh soldiers super soldiers and all that kind of stuff but by making it such a grounded universe it's very hard to go cosmic they needed to build their earth before they could build their stars well you never did come up with anybody besides starlin though well, you didn't let me, did you? <laughs> if, if i was feeding a lion i literally lost my arm <laughs> Because uh, you were you were licking your chops on that one. Let's see an art. See, I would I was gonna say the British invasion of, and you know, Garthinus, Alan Moore, uh, Warren uh, War Ellis, um, but they've already kind of touched on those books and they've done they've done their magic there and walked away. 
even Neil Gaiman. I want, I want to say. But see, imagine if, like, here's a thing that you haven't mentioned, okay? What's another line that got huge around the same time as Image Comic? Karen Berger and Shelley Bond over at Vertigo, right? They take all those British talent that they've been cultivating for several years, and they gave them their own little playground, and they, they again, they helped to build each other up by saying, okay, look, all of our kind of adult, kind of weird, alternative college-age comic books, they're all going to be part of this one line. We've got one huge hit in Neil Gaiman's Sandman. Uh, we're going to try to... It, it, most of the other stuff was in disrepair because Swamp Thing wasn't in a good place anymore by that point. Animal Man wasn't in a really great place by that point. Uh, Doom Patrol, Doom Patrol was start, this is before Vertigo. Okay. This is before Vertigo was coming in. Doom Patrol was kind of, you know, petering out because if Grant Morrison hadn't left yet, he was kind of on his way out. So it really the, the properties that had built the house that became Vertigo were kind of faltering. The only one that was still holding strong was Sandman. Even that was in its final years, right? But by virtue of the coolness by association of Sandman, by virtue of launching the, the series of death miniseries at that same time, uh, by having the same talents producing new works that started to catch people's imagination uh, and and taking properties that had been uh, continuing to do well like uh, Hellblazer under Enos and, and Dylan they managed to build up this whole line of cool British flavored books at a time where alternative stuff was the, the hip thing you know Nirvana and all that kind of bullshit so one of the things that Image had a problem with because they were so late to the, the game in getting writers in the first place and not utilizing them to the extent they could again the Spawn Rider series. You got Alan Moore for an issue. You got Neil Gaiman for an issue. Right. And then when you go back to those guys, Alan Moore doesn't do another thing with, I mean, Spawn, uh, Alan Moore was in there pretty early on because he did the Violator miniseries. Then he did like Spawn Wildcats. Neil Gaiman came back for three issues of Angela. Then he was gone again for another like year or so. Well, but that's just it. But Garth Ennis didn't come in until years later. You know, you know, uh, Garth Ennis was like, what, 95, 96, I think they finally roped him. But he'd been building heat on at Vertigo earlier on. What happens if image goes okay we need writers and we don't want to work with the same hacks that we hated over at marvel or what have you so what happens if they raid the the, the really hardcore raid the, the, those british talents what if they grab your grant morrison's your neil gaiman's your garth enis's but i thought you were gonna be like that's too easy you've already seen that yeah but imagine because vertigo had, had a lot of steam uh in those early years and you know vertigo was a, a hugely important property for a lot of years and think about it again one of the things that makes image comics what it is today is by being the new vertigo vertigo was the place where you could you could be a not so big talent you know garth enos and steve dylan were not like huge names or anything but they were able to take the heat they had off of hellblazer and roll that into preacher and preacher ended up becoming this huge cult sensation uh that that became the new sandman essentially um well it took a while for vertigo to get to the place where they were able to do those kind of creator owned contracts and of course ultimately those were terminated by warner brothers executives not wanting to give up any rights to anything wanting the whole fucking pie not uh, just a tiny piece or no piece whatsoever so what happens if image raids that talent pool to write their books what if and it's weird because i'm not sure it works really because again one of the problems i'm having as we're reading some of these image books that are written by guys like Moore and gaiman is they don't take them seriously they they really feel like they're kind of hacking it out they're they're kind of like almost like to some degree when i read the stuff written by the british guys over an image it almost feels like they're mocking them like they're like they're satirizing image like they're critiquing them uh I, I they're not fans of image you can tell from reading the stories they don't they, they may like the image concept they may like creator own you know books that sell but i don't think they'd actually like the image creators i don't think they like their art i don't think they like what they're doing to the industry and the types of stories they're trying to tell i, I don't 
think that Alan Moore gets his dick hard with, you know, crypto fascist government organizations, you know, policing the world in ultraviolent fashion. That's not his bag, man. Uh, I mean, it's not Grant Morrison's bag, certainly. Uh, Gaiman. So to the degree that those guys worked on those properties, to a large degree, they were mocking them. Uh, you look at Alan Moore. What's the first thing Alan Moore does when he takes over Wild, Wildcats? He completely deconstructs the concept. He reveals that the Wildcats are actually kind of a bunch of villains and assholes and they're essentially a bunch of racists. Oh, it's one of my favorite characters in his run. But that's, yeah, that, that, and he also, again, he created a whole new group of characters for his own interests and those guys don't fare very well, you know, within his story as far as how they look, what their morality and their decision makings are very problematic. But like the core Wildcats characters, they're ripped to pieces. It was difficult to see how the Wildcats could even continue to function after the story that Alan Moore told with them. They made that happen. They kind of forced that to happen. But realistically, it, it would make more sense if the Wildcats just completely disbanded after all the stuff they went through on Kara in the Alan Moore story. So I'm not sure you have the same kind of stories. And if you don't have those kind of stories, I don't think that Image and Vertigo had the same audiences. And I don't think that the talent at Vertigo really had a taste for the type of stories that audience are, I mean, uh, Image's are, uh, audience wanted to read. Um, I, I think that they'd actually maybe have done better over at Valiant, you know, potentially if you're going to try to find a book, a line that kind of marries those sensibilities a little bit better while still being commercially viable. I don't think it works. And I, I, I don't think it works to, uh, it, there's a novelty to having those guys work on image comics characters for a short span of time. And then later in the decade, when they took it a little bit more seriously and were able to do stuff that was more in the wheelhouse, particularly the late nineties were just like filthy with analogs, you know, guys like, oh, let's face it. What did Alan Moore do when he was writing Supreme? He wrote the silver and bronze age Superman stories. He'd have liked to have seen told that he knew couldn't be told in, in, in the post-crisis environment under guys like Mike Carlin. But he was telling Superman stories. Those weren't Supreme stories. Yeah. Uh, and, and and those aren't the kind of stories. Those stories didn't sell that great anyway, but they certainly wouldn't have sold great in the early 90s because that's not what people were looking for. They wanted new and fresh. They didn't want these nostalgic revisitations that Alan Moore ended up using, you know, doing in Supreme. So no, I actually think it doesn't work. I think that you needed compatible writers to work with Image, which they ultimately had. You know, uh, that's why Wildstorm did as well as it did because they got guys like James Robinson who could could write in that fashion, who could write to those type of interests, who had at least some degree of interest in that sort of stuff himself. I've never been struck by James Robinson being a particularly political writer. You know, he's a guy who I think enjoys making some money and and, and telling fun stories. And I don't think he's as as uh, uh, much of an ideologue. Where if you go to the guys that are more in that you know like a Pat Mills, uh, an Alan Moore, these guys are, have very rigid uh, ideas of, of of morality and what kind of stories they're comfortable telling and what kind of people they're they're wanting to associate in, in creating works. So I, I'm not sure that works. I think they might actually have needed to, to get a different kind of group of writers. They, they could have gotten they could have gotten by with the guys they ended up getting by with with your Paul Jenkinses, your James Robinsons, that kind of thing. But I, I don't think that it actually works if you try to go to the the, the Vertigo guys because those guys were just in super different of a headspace. It's true in the sense that you're also because you're taking guys who are taking, like you said, the weird and the unusual characters and fashioning stories around that and then you're going to throw them in a superhero setting and then want them to tell those strange and weird yeah, And it's not just the superhero stuff though and it's not and it's not just that it's people didn't want strange and weird from Image Comics. People wanted kick-ass you know fights and, 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 and cool dark twists and turns and shit. So it's a completely different mindset. Even if they had allowed the Vertigo writers to tell the kind of stories they would have to tell those weren't the kind of stories the Image audience wanted to read. Nice. So... That was our first episode of What If. <laughs> I don't know where it's going to go, but it's a fun conversation. Yeah, yeah. I, I would say 
you do an opening of like, like of, of watch your voice saying I am Utatutu of you know Earth twelve ten and this is the what if of uh, the Marvel super I, dude I I found that very interesting because you're, well, thank you because again you're doing all the talking but it's not like well in issue seven fourteen da 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 yours was just like you're putting it's the the best way I could put it together is I literally watched the living episode of Limitless where like the character talks about like have you ever seen the movie Limitless no where he takes a pill. And it, all it does is it reshuffles all your memories and ideas together so they make sense. So a book that he flipped through, he can actually remember all those pages or an article he read or a news, art, uh, a news report on a radio. Like he's able to put all these things together and put them together and create, like basically tell the future by putting all these events together because all these dominoes are going to hit each other. And so he goes into the stock market and he dominates the stock market. And then he realizes to gain power, he needs to be political. And, it, and so he slowly... I have, I have the movie you want to borrow. It's a great movie. It's a, it's a fast movie. It's fun. They did a TV series out of that too, as I recall. Yeah. It, it just didn't capture the movie because the, mo- the movie works as a self-contained story. And Bradley Cooper's really good at it. But watching you was that. <laughs> this article, I was like, I literally was like, he read this in Wizard. He saw this on this. And so you're putting them together. And you're like, and so this will work. Especially the middle part was a little bit too much like what you did. That last part was like, well, let me ask you this. What if the, the British writers come? It doesn't work, and that's kind of what I was going after. I want to see throw some because they done, they've tried again. The British writers tried to write for, for Image. They wrote interesting stuff, you know, the Alien versus you know Stormwatch, and you know. Well, Ben Warren Ellis is a guy who did work within the Image confines. He's specifically over at Wildstorm. He was a great fit for Wildstorm. Honestly, I'm not sure that uh, Warren Ellis. Warren Ellis. Oh no, you're right because now that I think about all the the English writers, they wanted to break the toys. They yeah. played with them. They wanted to break Well, Warren Ellis breaks the toys, too, but he... he... They all break the toys. Yeah, they all tend to break the toys, yeah. They all break the toys. They, they're, they're not there to, like, play with your toys. They want to kick them, stick them in the sand and stuff. And so Image is not there yet to be able to pull that off and get away with it. DC and Marvel can because they just reshuffled the cards and we're all over again. Where Image is still at the gate, they're still trying to build that core audience to carry them through. You know, if you kill off, you know... The Wildcats, then you're kind of like, well, you know, okay, they're dead now, right? Like, you're not going to be like Marvel, DC, and bring them back, right? You're going to be different, right? Because that's supposed that's your shtick. You're different. You're going to leave them dead. And they can't do that. So, like, I was sitting there, and I was trying to remember the, the Alan Moore stuff, and I was like, you're right, because when they go to the planet, you find out, like, Maul comes from a planet, and like, his people are slaves, and and, uh, and uh, Warblades people are, like, these sociopath killers, and, like, they're all kind of broken up into social classes, and they're all beneath everyone else. And then Voodoo's, like, the scum of them all. But then we just read, like, 10 issues ago where they're all best friends holding hands. And Alan Moore's like, no, 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 there's a class level. And they're all this. Mm-hmm. And I remember, I, was sitting, I remember reading that at the time and thinking, wow, that's really fucked up. But you're right. That felt more vertical than it felt image. Well, that and when they tried to pull them back together again after Moore left, it didn't work. I, I stuck with the book up through, like, around issue 50, and it just it never made sense that these people were hanging out together anymore. And honestly, I mean, Wildcats, they didn't get back together again with Joe Casey. And Joe Casey's another guy who could work within the Wildstorm framework because Wildstorm specifically became the vertigo of superheroes. That's what DC was buying when they bought Wildstorm was you had writers who were doing vertigoized superhero stuff and made that work, and you were buying the talent pool, the artist pool. Authority's the best example. Yeah. Anti-heroes to to the point where even DC was like the elite. They make fun of them by saying, well, they're too anti-heroes. Like Superman is the pinnacle of what a hero should be. But at the point, I remember, I remember going to your shop and people would pick up authority before they would touch a Superman comic. Because yeah. it was cool. Yeah. It, was, it was British. It was dark. It was, 
everything that Superman was not. That's why when I watch that Elite or I watch it or I read it, it's always fun because it's, it's you know, the Superboy fanboys flipping off the authority like, well, this is what a real hero is. And I remember I actually preferred authority because it was one of those, well, what happens if the heroes actually step in and start, like, putting pressure on governments to, like, no, you got to be better. I mean, Jack, what was his name, Jack uh, Oxmoor? I mean, he basically tells the governments, shape, shape up, we're going to do it for you. Like, dude, they're, they're technically like villains. Like, they're really villains, but they're trying to do it for the betterment of men. Like, it's, to me, it was very complex. Like, you couldn't root for them, but you couldn't hate them either because you, they were trying to change everything for the better. But then you start seeing all these government agencies trying to undermine them. And, I mean, to me, that was a very complex story. I don't think that would, I don't know if DC could pull that off. Yeah. Well, and that was part of the problem is that DC bought Wildstorm a few years too soon because they bought World's Wildstorm and then they tore it to pieces. Uh, Wildstorm, they, they, it was hilarious because it, I wouldn't go as far as they didn't strip mine it. Uh, Marvel strip mine Malibu. That was a whole different thing. DC bought the Wildstorm again because they had the Virgo superheroes and because they had the talent pool. But the wrong people were in control of DC at the time that happened, specifically Paul Levitz. And the thing that made Wildstorm work was because it was like, we're going to, we're going to push the boundaries. We're going to do stuff that nobody else was doing in comics. And we've got talent like Alan Moore that wants to push those boundaries. And then when you bring them to DC, well, there's already a lot of bad blood between Alan Moore and DC. And so Alan Moore is already feeling compromised and already looking for the exit, even though he stuck with it for a long period of time, but he still kind of wants to get out of there. He's not happy with where he's at. And because he's being censored and Mark Miller's being censored and, for all I know, Warren Ellis perhaps is being censored. And you just, you, it becomes a chilling effect. And where you had a company that was pushing the boundaries and, and exploring territory, those exciting people, all of a sudden they were neutered. And so most of those writers ended up going to other places. They, they abandoned it. Mark Miller went over to Marvel and became a huge Marvel superstar after really becoming famous off of authority. Uh, Warren Ellis went back to Marvel after he'd been there for a while and then left DC and Wildstorm behind. Uh, the artists that had been hot at Wildstorm did some art for DC, but a lot of them ended up splitting because DC wasn't where they wanted to work. They wanted to work at Wildstorm and they weren't happy with what happened there. A lot of the people that had made Wildstorm's marketing and, and, and it had helped to push that company forward, they, they, they didn't want to work at DC either when they formed IDW and IDW has become a, a, a industry powerhouse. So by buying Wildstorm, particularly at a time when they weren't prepared to deal with what Wildstorm had to offer, they basically destroyed Wildstorm. Um, now after Paul Levitz retired and it was Dan Didio, there was a better fit, but by that point Wildstorm was already falling apart and and it was too late to save it um, by the time that Didio was in charge but I'm not sure that Didio was necessarily the guy to save it either and I don't know that you wanted a Wildstorm by the time the 2000s rolled around I think that they, they're most vital they, they lost their vitality and they lost their, their industry role and uh, other people kind of filled that void to some degree but to a greater degree they just were never replaced and hurt the entire industry by having Wildstorm get lost to DC you know? <laughs> well I mean what, think about it. what's the closest thing you had to Wildstorm Storm after Wildstorm got bought by DC, probably Marvel Knights, you know, where where they where they got revitalized, where they basically started. You, Marvel Knights was the testing ground for revitalizing the entire Marvel universe, but there were limits, obviously, because it's Marvel Comics, and they try to push those boundaries. Bill Jemus, you know, Bill Jemus was definitely a daring person who was willing to push boundaries, but he was always he had bad taste, and he always pushed the wrong boundaries. It was always like him getting his his buddy, the shock jock uh, fan guy Zimmer 
Berman to to write Rawhide Kid as a flaming uh, uh, homosexual and stuff like that. And it's like we're in, a, in the early 2000s. We're finally starting to move away from those kind of uh, uh, gross, you know, excesses. And Marvel was trying to lean into them at the exact wrong time. Um, so. You never replaced Wildstorm once he was gone. Wildstorm, to some degree, showed the industry what it could and should be doing. And then it got absorbed by DC and nobody did that anymore. And you ended up with this watered down version of what Wildstorm was with guys like Mark Miller going off to, uh, Marvel and then later on doing his creator own stuff where it was obviously very successful. Miller did very well for himself, but it's still a bunch of analogs in short term stuff. So you can only build so much when you go off and do a superior or whatever, you know, you go off and you do Jupiter's children for, for six months here. You do a a wanted over there for six months. You, you, you can't build momentum because you're basically offering people one book or uh, three books. And what you need is whole lines. You need whole universes to propel the entire industry forward. It ends up just serving Mark Miller and it doesn't serve the entire industry by having those little tastes of what the industry could be doing. Um, uh, and also, let's face it, he's kind of tacky and he's going to turn off as many people as he turns on. So that's why you need. That's a little bit of personal. Opinion. No, no, but I'm saying if you, but again, with Wildstorm, if you've got, if you don't like what Mark Miller's doing, you still have Warren Ellis. If you don't like what Warren Ellis is doing, you still got Jim James Robinson. If you don't like Red Robinson's doing, you still got Joe Casey. You got all these different people doing all this different stuff and they're all part of the same universe. They're all part of the same line. So you still have something to push the, a, a whole uh, uh, slate of books forward and keep them going and keep interest in them. Uh, not everything is going to be for everybody, but you've got a little taste for everybody. But if Mark Miller is just off doing his crazy stuff and he's not supporting anybody else and there's no shared universe, there's no shared line there. It's just you either mark like Miller World or you don't. That's not propelling the whole u- industry. That's just propelling Mark Miller and his co uh, uh, cohorts. Well, no, that's true. I mean, mm-hmm. they were ending on- yeah, from which they never recovered. Well, it was it was there all there to set the stage for World Storm, where you're going to have Morrison and Lee on Wildcats and Morrison and uh, Gene Ha on Authority, and it's going to be a whole new reinvigoration, and it collapsed right out of the gate. Jim Lee didn't draw the fucking book. Uh, the the flagship book got one issue out. It's only ever had one issue out. I don't know. They don't think the second issue ever came out. They got to two. I don't remember two ever coming out, dude. And then uh, the Morrison uh, Authority got like three issues out, I think. And then Keith Giffen ended up working off of some of his uh, yeah. And and Keith Giffen ended up like take like taking some of uh, Morrison's notes or just springboarding off of it, and it was end up being like Keith Giffen, some other guy doing Authority, and it's like this isn't what we signed up for, you know. That, that that's not that's not what people would want. Morrison and Lee and Gene Ha, and it's going to be this big thing. And it's like it was just a wet fart, you know. Just nothing fucking came out of that. And Wildstorm never recovered from that shit. They ended their line, they shut everything down, and then they the lights flickered for a minute, and they were right back out again. And you ended up with like Keith Giffen trying to revitalize the entire line. And I love Keith Giffen. But he's not going to, he's not the guy who's going to revitalize a lot. He's a very specific taste. Uh, and Miller, he was basically kind of doing a Millerish type thing anyway. Um, so if you could get the real Mark Miller, why are you going to get the, the kind of. <laughs> so, okay. Uh, so that's the third stop in our. I, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what we're going to do with any of this, but it's, it's fun. It's a fun conversation, though. Just throwing it out there. There's, it's what if. Like, you know, uh, spine uh, presents what if. Yeah, I mean, we could do, we could do that as a rolled spine. That might be a thing because spawnometer has kind of a specific thing. Yeah, it doesn't really work there. Well, ours will be what the fuck. <laughs> what the fuck would have happened if? 
yeah, we'd be better with what the fuck. Like I said, to me, honestly, this was an interesting conversation because you're, you're storytelling. But again, we're throwing out, well, what it, I love when you want the, well, the British thing wouldn't work. These people have been, oh, it wouldn't work. No, no, it wouldn't work. And this is why not. And you give good examples of why it wouldn't work. Because I, I thought it would have worked, but you've made, I mean, even I, I started agreeing with you, no, they were there to break toys. Now, you made it sound worse, but they're mocking them and shit. I, I literally, but I do think they, I, they didn't take it seriously. They, they were kind of just half-assing it for a paycheck. You could tell they just, I think part of it too is, take a guy like Alamore, right? When you hear that story about whatever happened to the man of tomorrow, where Julie Schwartz was talking about how he's going to do like a last Superman story to kind of wrap up his run before Superman jumps in. And the story I heard is like, Alamore literally like jumped out of his seat, grabbed Julie by the lapel and said, I have to write that story. Well, obviously he has a love and a passion for Superman that he, he absolutely has to be the guy who tells that story about that specific character. None of those guys loved the image concepts. And again, like most people, they were probably mocking them as like, second, third generation X-Men knockoffs. Um, and they didn't, weren't invested. They, they didn't come up from a generation that cared about the X-Men necessarily. Their generation were into, um, just a whole other, a bunch of different books. You know, they, they were probably more into like Swamp Thing, for instance, you know, Wien and White Wrightson. Um, so they didn't have the passion for it. So how are you going to write third generation knockoffs of stuff you didn't care about in the first place and, and bring that kind of passion to it? It's a paycheck gig. And they, they that's why they would half ass it. I love, I love your little tension on the Jim Starr and stuff. Like that's, I was trying to egg you more, like, in what direction. Because I really... Well, more, Starlin doesn't have to do Cosmic, though. And Tom McFarlane, like, when he told that, that uh, one, Fagan told that story where he's sitting there with the founding fathers of Image at lunch or dinner with him and his buddy, and he's just like, how the fuck did I get... I'm thinking, you put Jim Starlin at that table, and right off the bat, you have him and McFarlane just bumping heads left and right. Because McFarlane... It's always been the treat. David, even he said, Fagan said, well, he was the engine that pulled the cars. Everyone else was a car. McFarlane was the engine. Well, Starlin is an engine. So you would have two different engines. McFarlane, who's just an artist, who says, this is the way it is. And you have Jim Starlin that's like, well, I've been in the industry, and this is how it works. And how does that affect all the writers? Like, Eric Larson's like, fuck y'all, I'm going to go play in my sandbox, and he's good. Jim, to me, Jim Lee has always been the scary cat of the group. He's going to jump on whatever side is the safest. He's not a dick. Well, no, but image was still daring, but I think that it was about crunching the numbers. But when he saw all the all the talent, yeah, yeah, he would have been the first guy. He was one of the last guys. There's a reason for that. Yeah, so he was probably the first artist. Whatever they like, hey, let's do a team up. Let's do it real quick. He wants. He's not burning bridges. He doesn't burn bridges. Layfield burns bridges. Yeah. Make, no, no, no. I'm sorry. I take that back. McFarland doesn't just burn the bridge. He burns it and pisses on. It's funny. Because he's got to be the guy. He's got to be right all the time. He's a dick. But talking to Starling, I think Starling would have been like, listen here, little boy. <laughs> this is how shit but I, I don't think that the egos work. I don't think that Starlin, because you keep bringing up Starlin with the falling. I don't think you can have that combination. Right. I don't. I, those that just oil and water. I don't think that they work together. You know. I, I think that like the properties. The, I, it's like you're saying. It, it, their their aesthetic works. I think that Jim Starlin writing Spawn makes sense. But I don't think that Jim Starlin and Mc, Tom McFarlane work together. So either McFarlane has to work with, I mean, either Starlin has to work with somebody else, which minimizes the impact. Like if, if you've got Starlin and Greg Capullo, maybe that works. That might, that might be something that could happen. But that means you've got, you know, a year change to however many years where, uh, image has already kind of been launched. So if you're talking about Jim Starlin being there as a founder, he's not writing Spawn. No. Actually, it would have been kind of cool. Could you imagine Garth Ennis doing the demon type stuff with Spawn? Ooh. 
that would have been pretty sweet. And he and he'd have been quite gettable. Yeah. Because and, and not just the demon stuff, but also Hellblazer going into those kind of edgy areas, but with McFarlane artwork and with that kind of promotional machine behind him. That could have been really. That could have really been something. That would have been really interesting to read. Yeah, because I mean, see, and that's what I like about the what is because like that's that makes you think. Cause I think if Garthinus was there at his at his prime, I think he would him and Steve Dillon would have taken Preacher to Image. I think Preacher would have been an Image, and that would have been the first Walking Dead of the series. Like like you said, that would have been there potentially. But again, Image had an audience that wasn't the same as Vertigo's audience. I think that maybe you needed the surroundings of Vertigo. Vertigo had a, an audience that had read Sandman, and Sandman was over with, and they wanted to find another Sandman. They wanted another book like that. And Preacher was a was a different beast, but it was in the same same headspace to some degree. Uh, it, it, it appealed to the same audience. Vertigo would, if you were to take Vertigo and put it inside Image, it would. You, you know what, Jim Starlin would have been on Wildcats. Starlin would have been a good fit on Wildcats because he could do the paramilitary stuff. Okay, he, he had some interest in that as long as he didn't have to draw it. Paramilitary mixed with all that space shit, all the alien stuff. And everything i can see that working i can see that being a good fit and i and i think that starlin is a guy who could work with jim lee and vice versa obviously lee was looking more cutting edge that's why you end up going with guys who were further out than starlin was but if you're talking about like the early issues like the first year where you just needed somebody to write this and not and make it stronger starlin would have been a pretty good fit i think yeah he's not the fit for that but i'm trying to think of somebody who does that kind of thing well in comics because it's not something that it really gets done well in Comics. Warren Ellis would have been a great fit for it, but I don't know if he was on anybody's radar at the start of the Image. I mean, because he he hadn't even done Doom twenty ninety nine yet by that point. You know, I think he might have just barely been doing Excalibur. So I, I don't know if he was around to be doing stuff back then yet. Simon Furman would have been a pretty good fit, even though I don't think he would have, would have been on anybody's radar. The, who did a bunch of stuff for Marvel UK, like Transformers books, Dragon's Claws, Death's Head. He'd have been a pretty good fit for Cyberforce, I think. Striker, Reap Claw, Heatwave, Sideblade, Impact, Velocity. They were once the finest cybernetically enhanced mutant gladiators in the world, but this is not the world that you and I know. Earth in the future is a planet moving ever closer towards its sun. The seas are drying up, the animals are dying, and civilian restaurants rampant in the streets of every town and city. Disbanded by the feds when the cyber corporations were finally regulated, the superhumans for hire must now reunite to save both man and mutant kind. Cyber Force, created by Mark Silvestri, with scripts by Simon Furman. Pat Mills, I think, he would have turned it... Talking about martial law. Right. Pat Mills would have been turning it into a, a anti-corporate screed. He would have had to satirize the, the basic premise of Cyberforce. So I'm not sure that that kind of satire works with Mark Celestial artwork. I think you need somebody who's willing to, to kind of go along with it, you know, and I, I, I think that Mills would have broken those, that toy. I think what, he'd have broken any of them, I think. I don't think he'd have worked with any of the image guys particularly well. Uh, maybe Shadowhawk because he, it could have been another one of those deals where he was attacking fascism. But in this case, the vigilanteism. But I th- he would have demonized the character of Shadowhawk. He would have definitely. He would, he would, yeah, he 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 would have taken. He would have made him a detestable person. By the time Shadowhawk ended, I think Pat Mills would have turned him into something that needed to be brought down, and then would have been hated by by people. But but it would have been interesting. Yeah, that would have been very interesting, dude. Like to have a you start a book out with a hero. And yeah, they slowly become the villain of the book. Yeah, yeah. You have a cutoff point. I mean, you literally have your, you know, it's not one of those fucking books that last forever or you stop at 144. 
you you basically like we're gonna start a hero and then at the end he's gonna be a villain. And guess what? I need your heroes to come and stop my he's out of control. Ooh, that would have been really after he's handed a maid's death sentence and watches his hood fall into ruin from the man's drugs and oppression, the final straw for Paul Johnstone is watching a super-powered arsonist set free with little more than a slap on the wrist due to his social status. Paul is disillusioned by the legal system of his heart and takes possession of a mystical helm, dating back to ancient Egypt, taking up the mantle of Shadowhawk. Created by Jim Valentino with the scripts by Pat Mills and Tony Skinner. With the young blood, if you're going to show what happens if superheroes had press agents and did lines of coke and shit like that, obviously that's Chaken. Howard Chaken? Howard Chaken on Young Blood. Peter Milligan could have made that work too, but again, Milligan was a Vertigo guy. He, he's a guy who's who's willing to play around with that kind of stuff, though. So that would be a possibility. He, he would have definitely been more accessible. Chaykin's a guy who's not for everybody. He's a guy who does not like slow down the bus and let you jump on, you know. Um, and and so that might have been a little bit difficult. But the thing is, is Youngblood was so fractured anyway was such like a hodgepodge of ideas that didn't get fully developed anyway i i think that Chaykin might have actually kind of steered into that and and made that kind of work a little bit it might have just been kind of like this weird sort of stream of consciousness commentary on celebrity superheroics <laughs> I, I mean ecstatics was basically young blood that's what i'm saying reading that i'm like dude that's young blood but better because i mean the series was so i mean hell they have their life field ready around their press agent yeah, and and you even have the the ultra violence in ecstatic the way you had in young blood. So that's why I was thinking Peter. Mo. Yeah, no, I definitely can see that. Yeah. Adored by fans, reviled by their fellow superhumans, Youngblood does the government's dirty jobs that others can't or won't. All they want in return is fame, money, sex, power and lucrative endorsement deals. Rob Liefeld and Peter Milligan's subversive, media-loving anti-hero star in a series of bizarre, hilarious and deadly adventures. See all your favorites, including Shaft, Die Hard, Chapel, Vogue, and Bod Rock, in action against and alongside Prophet, Supreme, Glory, and others. Yes. See, I don't think they would have brought on more artists as themselves. They wanted clones of their own that ended up being the most successful. I think that they felt like the the older school artists were diluting them, were diluting their appeal by making them seem more dated, more conventional. They wanted to be the cool kids and with the cool, flashy art, the new guys. So. It's another writer would be hard to see there. I mean, I was I was gonna throw something out like a Stephen King or some shit like that. Like, well, no, you're not. If if DC and Marvel can't get Stephen King, Image Comics didn't get Stephen Marvel. King. I, that's not a good fit. He he, because they tried that. Mar, Mar, well, no, Marvel tried that. They did the Barker verse for a while there. They had a whole line of books, and in fact, that's where the Wachowskis got their start. Oh really? Yeah, the Wachowskis were writing Ecto Kid, and that's why they were they knew Steve Scrooge, who's drawing it, and that team ended up working on Matrix together, and they also did uh, the Doc Frankenstein books for Burly Man in the early two thousands. But yeah, that's where the Wachowski got started was on the Barker comic book line. That was the one they had the pinhead, right? <laughs> I don't think that the 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 pinhead stuff was at Epic, <laughs> and then but they, what they wanted to do is have Barker launch a line of like edgy superheroes. There was actually it, it, they they weren't in Marvel continuity by recollection, but they were separate from Epic as well. They, they it was a Razor line, and it was it was an imprint that was still part of Marvel, and I think still had a co comic code authority, so they didn't mingle with the Hellraiser stuff at all. 
Terrible. Was it horribly written? Or what? I, I don't. I, hardly anybody I know ever read this stuff, so I can't really speak to it. Because, uh, well, I mean, it's it's Saint Sinner, Ecto Kid. Oh, brand new creations. Yeah, they're brand new creations. Uh, that took existing characters. No, no, no. That that could have been kind of interesting too, but no, they they were brand new, and it, it came out the wrong time too. It came out right before the bust, and Marvel had already oversaturated the market anyway. So it was just another thing that Marvel was grinding out that nobody actually wanted or was asking for. Okay, I, remember, I can't. There was a writer I thought about earlier, and it slipped away. Well, that was pretty good, man. I said we do that as a little, just throw it out as a what what's. Yeah, it might just be the what the fuck episode, yeah. What the fuck if? I'm telling you, I, people are going to steal that, dude. They're going to steal that idea. And that's not all. Don't miss Wildcats by Jim Lee and Larry Hama. The Savage Dragon by Eric Larson and Evan Dorkin. Wet Works by Wills Portacio and John Ostrander. We're more than just an image. Quick shout outs to Derek William Crabb, Joe Crawford, Keechi Baker, Ali Bats, DeBeche, The 108 Sage, Dr. Ange, Chris at Bad Books for Beginners, The Cinnabud Podcast, Comic Reflections, Darren Ruth Sutherland, David Golding Art, Gene Hendricks, The Hammer Strikes, Random Geeky Stuff, I Am Grant Richter, Indie Media East Coast, Joe Crawford, Keechi Baker, Kyle Benning Likes Comics, Longbox Graveyard, Rad Adventures Podcasting Network, Randy Caldwell, Ryan Daly, Silver and Gold Podcast Network, Siskoid, Tim Price, Warlord Worlds, 101 Warrior for Peace Podcast, and Xenozoic Xenophiles.